Father, we thank you that it can be well with our souls, and in fact, it is well, even when we don't feel like it, even when the sorrows are many, when our pillows are wet with our tears, our soul has peace with you because you have made it to have peace. You've put in us your Holy Spirit who is mortifying the flesh in us. You have promised us uh, a justification that is um, through Christ and his work alone. You have promised us a glory in which one day we will rest in you forever, perfect and without any trouble. We ask that you would help us to hold fast to these promises through faith. Even when our souls um, are, feel like rough places, um, even when they, are, uh, ex- when they experience and endure many trials and difficulties, help us to continue to look over and over and over again to you who is our rock, our peace, our refuge, our life, a very present help in trouble. Lord, we also ask that as we look to you and as we seek your peace and as we believe in the peace that you have promised us and that you are giving to us, that you would also bring um, about the experience of that peace as well, that you would help our lives to be conformed to the image of our Savior, to your will and your promises and the fruit that you are bearing forth in us through the gospel. We ask that you would do that now, um, even now, as we come to the reading and preaching of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please remain standing if you're able and turn your attention to the book of Titus. This is in the New Testament. And to continue reading and preaching uh, through uh, this portion of God's word, looking forward to this this morning. This is one of Paul's uh, letters, uh, his letter to, uh, to Titus, a, a minister, a co-laborer in the gospel, one of the ones who uh, worked alongside of Paul. And at this point in Titus's life, in Paul's life, um, uh, they are separated. Um, Paul has left Titus on the island of Crete and has called him to continue the work that has begun there, a work of establishing uh, these believers and, uh, the, and churches there. Let's give our attention to God's word. Um, I'm going to be focusing on a couple verses, uh, verse 3 in particular of chapter 2, um, but I'm going to begin reading uh, a little bit back, actually in chapter 1, verse 10. And I'll read through 2, verse 5. So let's hear God's word this morning. Titus 1, verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to be good teachers, And so to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. 
Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. I'll end there. (laughs) You may be seated. As we go through this list of different age groups and different genders, um, as we hear sort of Titus's instructions, right, on how to teach, we get to hear for ourselves the kind of lives that we're supposed to live, right, as older men and older women, as younger women and younger men. As I mentioned before, uh, or last time, These categories are not hard and fast. Um, You know, what is old, what is young, right? These are somewhat flexible, right? They do have meaning, but there's not precise definitions of these things. Even in the ancient world, um, there were not exact uh, uh, definitions of these things, and there aren't now. But you all kind of get the general idea, right? Uh, um, we tend to have a sense for who's older and who's younger, and that's probably good enough. Um, also, it's not necessary to be uh, super specific about these things because in one way or another, we're all older or younger, right? We all have people who are older than us um, and all have people who are younger than us. Um, there are ways in which we are always sort of looking up and down on the uh, age and maturity spectrum and learning and helping each other along the way. Well, in that, um, then that part of what that means is for, as we think about applications, is that though Paul gives uh, specific instructions to specific groups of people, and that's worthy of considering, we will today, We ought not to check out if we are uh, not explicitly a part of this group. There are only some of you here this morning who count as older women. That doesn't mean the rest of us say, well, this one's not for me. I'll wait for the next one (laughs) or just remember last week's, right? There's a way in which the instructions to other people, even in their particular callings and tasks, um, have benefits for us all, right? One of the ways, and there are many, and I want you to really keep thinking about this, right? Why do instructions to other people matter to me? It's a really important question. If you can answer that question, it really opens up a lot of application throughout the whole Bible. I'll let that sit with you for now. Um, But one of the things to note and, and remember in answer to that question is that we are a body, right? This is a metaphor that the scripture uses. The church is, a, is like a body, right? With different parts and all of them having their distinct functions and yet working together, right? So perhaps you are a thumb, right? But that doesn't mean how the knee is doing doesn't matter to you at all, right? Um, the, perhaps you've had an injury um, to one part of your body and then quickly you realize how everything is connected to that, right? You never thought that a hangnail, right, would make such a difference uh, for the rest of how you live and act, and yet it does, even something that small. Pick any other kind of health or injury. Um, If some part of you gets stronger or weaker in your physical body, it affects the whole, right? It makes a difference, We should be caring about one another. And even in this passage, we have um, a direct command toward that end, one which we'll consider even more next time, in which the older women are called to teach the younger women, to train them, help them. Uh, There's this responsibility that we have for uh, one another, not just a general interest, right, but a responsibility and privilege uh, to care for one another in our various callings. So those are some things to think about as we begin. Uh, One more uh, thing to mention here at this point is that Paul explicitly says that though he's addressing the older women, the things that he says don't just apply to them. For example, if we look um, 
When he says in verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, what is he referring to? Well, he's referring to what he just said about older men. Right? So these same things that we talked about last week that are to be evident in older men, namely to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness, the same applies to the older women is what he's saying. Those characteristics, those virtues are not just for one gender, they are for both. Um, they are important for both. And so there is a lot of overlap here. Um, another example we have of that is uh, the command not to be slanderers or slaves uh, to much wine. Um, that's something, a command that Paul gives to uh, male deacons in uh, 1 Timothy. And so, uh, because we see a certain command here to a certain person, it uh, doesn't mean that the rest of us just check out and say that this, isn't, this doesn't apply to me. It, in fact, does apply to us often very directly, and then, of course, indirectly as well. Now, I'm not saying everything there is to say about that, and I want you to continue thinking about that. But for now, let's go ahead and move on and consider what it is he says um, about older women and how uh, they are to live. The first thing he says that I just read is in uh, verse 3 when he says older women are likewise to be reverent in behavior. Reverent in behavior. So as I mentioned, this is a way of him summarizing or restating what he just said about older men. So we can perhaps uh, define this most easily by saying to be reverent in behavior is to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. We can also add to that a, a, a new uh, sort of lens or a way of looking at that. The word that Paul uses here is actually a word like priestly. They are to be priestly in the way that they act. It's a very interesting way uh, to say it. Um, this reverence here um, has a very religious um, a religious connotation. Let me remind you that all of us are priests in one way or another. Here's what 1 Peter 2, chapter 4, uh, verses 4 and 5 say. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, Paul doesn't, or Peter doesn't just say that to older women. He says that to all of us, right? He, what is he comparing us to there? He's comparing us to a house, a holy house, a temple. As we come to Jesus Christ, we're like stones, living stones being built up into this dwelling place for God. Then sort of staying within that same domain, but switching the imagery a little bit, he says, we are now also like a holy priesthood. We are those who are ministering before the Lord uh, in communion with him, offering what? Not animal sacrifices, but spiritual sacrifices, even ourselves, not to atone from our, for our own sins, but spiritual sacrifices through Jesus Christ, who is our atonement. We offer sacrifices through him. We give of ourselves, our lives, our love to the Lord. In faith, we give ourselves to him in the works that we do, in the ways that we live, in praise to him and with glory to him. And that's sort of what Paul is describing here. And Paul describes our lives and according to our different stages and genders and all of this, what he's describing is a Christian life that is, has integrity, that there's character, there's a, a matchup between our faith in Jesus Christ, our cornerstone, and the way that we live, right? A cornerstone is something that guides in the direction of the building of the whole temple it's the, or the building. It's the thing, the stone on which everything is determined, which everything rests. And it's like that. The people that he describes beforehand, what does he say about them? He says there's a mismatch. It's not working. They say these things. They profess God. They profess these things about God. 
but their lives, their works don't show it. Right? They say we're built on the cornerstone, but then it's like this weird building that's all sort of toppling in on itself. The picture that Peter describes is this beautiful holy temple that's built on what? On Jesus. There's a match there. It fits together. And in calling older women to be priestly, to be reverent in behavior, he's calling them not just to be people who are good and moral, but he's calling you older women. He's calling you to be people who live your lives on the basis of Jesus Christ, that cornerstone. He's calling you to live your lives out of that faith in him, to be thinking about things according to God and according to what he has done for you. And that's so important. That's a theme that Titus keeps bringing up over and over and over again. We're not just to be busy out there doing good things to, for whatever reason, except this. Because the Lord is at work. To be for the glory of God. And as he says, and he concludes and gives a reason for this in verse 5, he says, that the word of God may not be reviled. If we say that we are Christians, if we say that we believe that we are this holy priesthood, a spiritual house, if we say we live and only live through the work of God in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, and then we don't live like it, it blasphemes the name of the Lord. It, it, It does not give a good witness to the world. The world says, you believe this, and yet you do this, that doesn't make sense. And if that comes from that, I don't want anything of that. That the word of God may not be reviled. As Christians, we are those whose eyes have been opened up by God to see the word of God as it is its hopefulness, its promises, its blessings, its salvation. And because of that, and because we are those who have been called by that word into fellowship with God, as those who know that word and love that word, we are people who don't want it to be reviled. It's precious to us. We care about it. We are those who have been saved by grace, and that matters to us. And it should matter to us. And so, older women, um, instead of simply saying, as these uh, false teachers were doing, instead of simply saying uh, that you believe God or you know God, but then living in a way that is totally contrary to that, Paul calls you here to act in a priestly way, to act in a way that is sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness, rooting your life, rooting your actions, everything that you do in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. And this is, of course, what we're all called to do. And we thank the Lord for those older women here in this congregation and in other places in our lives that exemplify this. What a blessing it is to have you in our lives. To have you constantly pointing us to Jesus Christ. To have you flowing with these fruits that are, are, are so helpful to us and to the body. It is a blessing to see the Lord working in our older sisters, in our mothers in the faith, as they teach us and train us and help us to grow. By their words and by their example, they show us the Lord Jesus Christ in his beauty, in his glory, in his truthfulness. And we are thankful for that. Next, Paul moves to some very specific things Um, to older women, um, problems likely that they were experiencing in their culture and um, perhaps unsurprisingly we experience in ours as well. It's a contrast to the reverent behavior, the priestly actions that older women are called to. He says older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not 
slanderers, and slaves to much wine. The word slanderer here is diabolus, devils, accusers, right? The devil is the accuser. Um, he is the one who attacks and says things um, often that aren't true, right? Older women here are called uh, to not be, uh, we could say, little devils, <laughs> um, accusers, slanderers as it's translated here. Priests are those who connect um, God and man, right? Who represent man before God and on God's behalf uh, tell of his works and give of his gifts uh, to other people. They are a joining force, a force or a, uh, a means that the Lord uses to bring us into communion with him. That's what priests do. That is not what the devil does. The devil, through his accusations, through his slander, seeks to break apart people, right? Um, remember Job, for example, right? He goes before the Lord and he seeks to divide Job from his Savior, Job from his God, um, both in God's mind, to put it uh, that way, um, and in Job's, right? In, to God, he says, he doesn't really follow you. He doesn't really love you. He doesn't care about you. He just feels that way because of all the stuff he has. Right? The accusation, the slander against the Lord's servant. Fortunately, the Lord doesn't believe slander and accusations, of uh, false ones. Right? Um, the, Lord, the devil also brings um, these kind of accusations about God uh, to Job and um, taking away all of these things that he has, uh, Job is left in a position where he has to wonder about the goodness of the Lord. You see the work of the devil in that. Now, ultimately, the devil is God's tool, right? Um, this is the devil's work, yes, but he is uh, used by God to do several things in the story of Job. One is to prove his own faithfulness, God's faithfulness, and another is to prove Job's. And Job's faithfulness is, of course, a proof of God's faithfulness who works in Job. It's sort of like, um, you know, if you, if, uh, if you were at a demonstration, right, of some product at Costco, and they say, here, try it, see how sharp the knife is, right? You try it, you go, yep, that was sharp, <laughs> or yep, it didn't break, the Lord allowed Satan to test Job, and he didn't break. He stayed true. He stayed steadfast. Why? Because the Lord doesn't break. Because the Lord is true. Because the Lord is steadfast. The devil seeks to divide, and he divides with lies, often half-truths and things like this. He did this with the Lord, our Savior, too, remember? He takes the Lord... Um, he finds him uh, out in, in uh, these wandering places, in these deserted, desolate places, and he comes to the Lord Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, and he tempts him with all kinds of things. He seeks to break the Lord Jesus, the, the Son of God, apart from his Father. He says, bow to me, and I'll give you the things that you're after. I'll give you glory and kingdoms and all of these things. He tempts Jesus in a number of ways. He seeks to divide the Father and the Son, but of course, this is impossible. The Trinity is indivisible. You cannot pull it apart. You cannot pull God apart. And so, Satan fails yet again. Well, in speaking to older women here, Paul calls them, through Titus, to not act in this way, to not act as those who are uh, through, through gossip, through slander, through quarreling and these kinds of things, to act as those who are dividing people from one another and especially people from the Lord. Instead of tearing people apart, they are to bring people together, teach and train and show forth the Lord and his goodness and his will. 
The second thing that Paul mentions is not being, uh, this is related to self-control and other things that are mentioned. But he says that older women are likewise to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. You don't find the word addiction um, in the Bible, or at least uh, these verses here, um, but this is essentially the, it's the same thing, um, assuming, I guess you'd have to say, what do you mean by addiction? But um, it wouldn't be a bad word, I'll put it that way. When we talk about addiction, um, it is important to remember and think about the ways in which the scriptures talk. This is a very vivid, vivid image, isn't it? Slaves. Slaves uh, to much wine. Addiction is like this. It's one reason we have this specific term. Addiction describes not just a, a problem that happens from time to time, but a kind of slavery, a kind of control that something uh, or someone or some action has in your life. Now, in our uh, day and age, being a slave to wine or to some other substance, um, to be addicted to something, uh, we are, uh, much of uh, popular literature and, and, and science and these sort of things uh, stra- uh, underline the biological component of those things, the biological component of addiction, um, how it happens, how it functions in our bodies and all that, that's true. And all, and all of the parts of that. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that addiction, that a, a kind of moral thing, would have a biological component. Everything you do has a biological component. You are a human being with a body and with a soul that are related to one another, that influence one another. Um, we don't need to deny the biological aspects of our moral life. Right? The scriptures attest to this. Right? Um, uh, David talks about not confessing his sins, right? and he feels like his body is falling apart. He feels the hand of the Lord heavy upon him. He feels aching in his bones. Right? It hurts when he's not confessing his sin. Physically hurts him. And we also have descriptions in the scriptures that when people turn in confession and turn to the Lord, they find that their bodies feel better, right? The soul and the body are interrelated. This is how God made us. Of course, there is a biological component to slavery to alcohol or other kinds of things. But that doesn't mean that there's not a moral component to it as well. Whether we're addicted to alcohol or any other thing, we must always remember as Christians that we are only to have one chief master, one king of all kings, one who rules above all else. Addiction and slavery to this or that thing undermines that, doesn't it? Because if you are a slave to alcohol or some other thing, you have another master. You have another master other than the Lord, other than God. You are owned. You are controlled. You are enslaved by something and someone other than Christ. So when he says, I want you to do this, you say, I can't. I don't want to. I'm unable to. He says, why are you unable to? (laughs) Because I have to obey this other thing. This control, this urge, this demand, this I am controlled by it. I am enslaved to it. And as Christians, we shouldn't be enslaved to anything except the Lord Jesus. And that doesn't mean there aren't things and people in our lives that, you know, have authority over us and there is, you know, those things are all appropriate. I'm here, even in this passage, he will call older women to teach and train younger women to be submissive, right, to their own husbands. Right? So submission and, and, and these kinds of things are not bad in themselves. The problem is, is when we take anything, a husband, uh, a drink, uh, and anything, and put it as number one. Say, if the Lord says this, 
But my addiction says this, the Lord drops. Now, how do you know if you're addicted to something? I think you think through this language of, of slavery. Am I controlled? Am I, do I feel uh, that I am not a master of this? Am I controlled by it? Am I being owned by it? God calls us to enjoy the good gifts he has given us, alcohol included. He calls us to enjoy the gifts that he gives us and use them to uh, bless others as well. But he never calls us to be enslaved to them, to be controlled by them, or to use them to hurt other people. Now these a couple things, um, slandering and um, addiction or slavery, being slaves of much wine, um, seem to be cultural problems, um, perhaps for these women in particular and others. Remember, Paul has just said um, that the Cretans themselves say uh, that there are these problems. Remember back in chapter 1, in verse 12, he says, quoting uh, a prophet of their own, one of their own poets, Cretans and, and others, there are multiple attestations to this, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul is addressing a cultural problem here. Right? It's not a, 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 a problem that in a category like race or ethnicity or something like that, there is a cultural problem here in Crete. We have them too, right? We can look at our society, we can look at our, the culture that we live in, and we say, there are things about Americans that are just not so hot, that are sinful, that are wrong, and tend to capture our hearts a lot. Being honest about those. And in this culture, in this church, in this growing community of Christians, Paul is calling them through this servant, God is calling them through his servant Titus to pay attention to these things and to tell and train and teach his congregation, and congregations possibly, and that they... Uh, that they ought not to live in the way that the culture is living. Slander, gluttony, drunkenness, these kinds of things were a problem. And he says, I know this is a problem. It's obvious this is a problem, but this is not the way for Christians. Just because it's prevalent, just because it's common, just because it's on TV a lot or in the movies, doesn't mean that it's okay for us. Well, how do you grow in these ways? Thinking particularly about slavery to something. I think we can even be slaves of gossip and slander. We develop these habits and patterns in our lives that we say, this is kind of who I am. This is what I do. This is how I live. How do we get past these things? How do we grow in them? Well, there's a lot that can be said there. I won't try to say it all, but let me mention a few things. The first thing is to avoid it in the first place. We learn self-control, learn moderation, and we be watchful so that when we are tempted, when we, do, uh, when we are tempted to go, astray, to go astray, which we will be, we notice it. We pay attention to it so that we can return to the path. And if you're driving and you're going down the road and you're going to your place and, you know, you've got your GPS on or something like that and you make a turn, right, you have that GPS there to warn you to say, you need to redirect, right? And hopefully you don't go 30, 40, 50 miles before you redirect. You just do it right then. Sometimes it's tempting for us to excuse our sin because it's small, because it feel small. In some ways, maybe it is small in comparison to other sins that uh, we experience or that uh, people face. But loved ones, that's the best time to deal with it. I can point to particular plants, <laughs> weeds in my property that I wish I had dealt with a while ago when they were this big. I bet you are thinking about this too right now. I was just noticing yesterday in the front of my house, there's all these little tiny little plants after the rain we've gotten, and, right? And they're starting to pop up. And I thought, what am I going to do? <laughs> right? 
do you deal with them when they're small and it takes about a half a second to pull it out or however you want to deal with it? <laughs> or do you wait until it's got a you know, trunk <laughs> and roots, right, that go deep down, right? And it's hard and it's going to take a shovel and a half an hour of pulling and yanking and then might come up again because you didn't get the whole thing, right? Using this time of year and the analogy of weeds, I'm comparing this to our sins. When you see something popping up in your life, when, when the GPS is like, you have gone off track, right? When your conscience says, I think that was a bit much, or I think that wasn't quite enough, whatever it is the thing is, right? Redirect then. Take care of it now. Deal with it when it's small. Don't excuse it because it's small. This is your opportunity, right, to deal with it when it's easy. Now, some of you are thinking, but I have problems that are not easy anymore. I could beat myself up all day for not dealing with stuff when I was 10 years, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. And that brings me to the second thing. If we are going uh, to grow in the problems that we face and even the uh, addictions that we have, the idolatry that is ingrained into our hearts and lives, we have to be honest about the problem. Honest before the Lord, honest before other people, especially those people that we are hurting through our actions. You can't deal with a problem that you're not being honest about. And self-deception is one of the biggest problems we face in this life. Actively avoiding the truth. Actively saying things to ourselves that say, eh, maybe later, not as bad as someone else, etc., etc. We have to be honest about these things. We're a people of truth, after all. We have been rescued and redeemed by the truth. God didn't come into this world and tell us some nice things and coddle us a little bit and just sort of hope that we get better. He came into this world and allowed himself to be murdered. He came into this world and died on a cross and says, that's what happens to your good works. That's what you all deserve. You need to die and I will die for you. And that way you can have death and life in me. God doesn't come in and give us three, four, five little tips. He comes and he dies for us to conquer sin and death and the devil and this enslavement forever. He gives us the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and loves us and sanctifies us encourages us and helps us to be people who are honest, who will look evil square in the eye and say, that's evil, and I see it in me, and I'm not afraid to confess it because I know that I have peace with God through the cross of Christ. I don't have to hide it. I don't have to pretend it's not there. I don't have to sort of make excuses. I can just say, it is what it is. <laughs> and have that kind of confidence because I know that God is greater than my sins. That kind of honesty that's rooted in faith is life-giving because it's rooted in faith. Because it's rooted in the confidence that we have in the Lord Jesus. We have to be honest and trust him that we can be honest. Honesty, of course, just in and of itself is not exactly the same as repenting. Being honest about a problem is not the same thing as repenting of it. In our day and age, many of us are catechized uh, by psychology the movements of the heart. It's very easy to go online and learn all kinds of, I will even say, good, helpful things. A lot of bad, too, but there are many good, helpful things that will help you diagnose the problems and the things that are going on inside, right? But, you, but the fact that you can say, I know what the problem is, doesn't solve the problem. Just because you know what's wrong, uh, whether it's 
uh, through, however it is you come to find that out, most especially through the scriptures pointing and pressing and pushing on your hearts, just because you're able to identify it and even the mechanisms behind it doesn't mean that change is going to happen. Lots of people will tell you the bad things that they are, but that doesn't mean that they're changing or they're interested in changing. You can know about something, but until you decide to do something about it, nothing is going to change. You have to make a commitment to change. You have to be clear in your mind and in your heart what change looks like. Can you see it? Can you visualize it? Can you talk about what the difference is? Right? Repentance is turning away from sin and turning toward righteousness. Do you know what that is? Do you want it? Have you decided to go after it? But as we said with being honest, you can't simply decide on your own. These things come from faith and have to be in the Lord as well. Taking specific, concrete steps towards a new behavior. Lots of people do that who aren't Christians. But all that ends up happening is you exchange one idol for another idol. You exchange perhaps an evil work as an idol, as a thing that enslaves you, for good works that are now your idol and enslave you. God doesn't say, replace me with good works. He says, trust me, for, and I will produce good works in you. Put your faith in me, and you will be fit for good works. Remember, like I keep saying, uh, uh, godliness is being connected with God, in communion with God, and producing the fruit of God. Godliness may have a very moral surface. It may look good. There might be lots of good works. It might make you a great employee, a great spouse, a great neighbor. But if it's not rooted in the Lord, it's effectively and ultimately godless. It is without him. There is no life. There is no way apart from Jesus Christ, apart from him. And so you can, and there's lots of people who do this. They say, I'm addicted to alcohol. I'm going to change. I'm going to live a better life. And now I'm taking concrete steps to improve that. And you know what? Some of them actually get better apart from Christ. Because of Christ's mercy, because of God's goodness and his grace, But those changes that happen within them are ultimately not helpful. Ultimately. Maybe they'll treat their wife better. Maybe they'll live, uh, you know, be a better employee. Good penultimate things will happen. But not ultimate things. Not saving things. Not God glorifying things. We just replace one idol for another. Christian repentance is different. It's not ju- it includes turning away from what is bad and turning toward and walking what isn't good. It includes that. But it also includes and is grounded in and is flows from faith. It has to. There is no way to the Father except through Jesus Christ. There is no way to maturity, to good works, to, to good anything. Not truly, apart from Christ. In him, we have true godliness because we have God. In him and in him alone can we look and be truly honest about ourselves and say, you know what, it's not just that I have a problem, an addiction problem, a slandering problem, or whatever else problem, It's that I am completely corrupted. (laughs) And that even if I go and try to do good things, it will ultimately fail before the Lord, who demands not just some good works, but perfect works. To truly change in a way that pleases God, in a way that is grounded and makes us a, a place fit for God, we have to give up on ourselves. We have to give up on our lives. We have to give up on our trying and say, Lord, I need you. I need you completely and in every way. 
And in every part of our repentance, our desire to change, our zeal for change, the specific actions we take for change, we're constantly going back to the Lord over and over and over again, saying, you are my hope, you are my forgiveness, you are my strength. Because you know what? When you try to change and you try to grow and you try to become a mature older woman, if you're a woman, or a mature older man, if you're a man, it is hard. (laughs) You will fail. There are setbacks. And you need to have a confidence that is in someone and something that is greater than yourself. And you need to know that the things you are doing is not just to make your life a little bit better, but it is for the glory of the Lord God. It is to demonstrate his things and it is to make your life something that doesn't bring shame to the promises of the gospel and the hope of the gospel, but shows that they are true and good and that the Lord God is at work. You you and the world will see that the Lord is at work if you are trusting in the Lord, if you're putting your faith in the Lord. And as you do so, he brings about his work in you. That's what repentance truly is. And that has to be our attitude when we come up against uh, the ways in which our hearts are inclined towards sin. Sins that are prevalent in the culture and sins that are not prevalent in the culture. Whatever they are. We have to see ourselves and as we see this high bar that Titus is setting for us. And for you, older women, as he sets that bar and he says, this is what godliness looks like. This is what the Christian life looks like. That should bring us encouragement and zeal and we should strive for that. But we must remember how we do it in a priestly way, which means going to the Lord, seeking the Lord, in communion with the Lord through Jesus Christ, who has given himself as a sacrifice for sin and who pours out his Holy Spirit so that we would find communion with God, strength, life, and hope, even in the setbacks and even in the trials. The final piece of this verse, which I think what I'll do is continue on with uh, next time, is he says uh, that they are to uh, teach what is good, or I think a better translation may be uh, to be good teachers. The older women are to be those who are uh, growing in their skill and their ability to be helpful, to be able to show and teach the things that I've been saying, to be able uh, to, uh, to, to show and to teach and to live out the work of God in ways that are appropriate and timely and skilled. We'll think about that more next time. I'll just finish by saying this, and I guess I'm repeating a little bit, but these things are hard. <laughs> I know that. As you look at your own life and you say, wow, there are ways in which I'm not doing this, or I'm not doing that, or I could grow in this way or that way, I want you to be encouraged and remember the Lord. Remember that as your heart is convicted of these things or as you just are excited and see opportunities around you and desire to grow, whatever stage of life you're in, whatever, uh, whichever gender you are, that you would do so trusting in the Lord, looking to the example of the Lord and looking to the life of the Lord as your strength and as your hope. Where else are you going to look? What other strength is more secure? What other help is more present and near? Where else can you go? Beloved, the Lord Jesus loves you. He's died for you. He lives for you. He's working in you. You can live for him. You can live in him. And you can share that with others. Let's pray now and ask that he would help all of us to do that as we grow in our lives in him. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the gifts in which you have poured out on us and the ways that you are training and growing us in this life. We confess the many ways in which we do stray, in which we get off the paths that you have set us on, but we thank you for calling us back. In this passage, you give to us 
a redirection, a, a, a reminder of, of the truth and the way of righteousness. Your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Help us not to despise it, but to love it, to hear it with joy and hear not the voice of a man, but the voice of the Lord speaking to all of us, training us, teaching us, guiding us, equipping us that we might follow after you. And Lord, we know that we are uh, totally unable to do that apart from you working in us. In our sin and in our misery, we indeed are unfit for any good work. And so we cry out to you with our hearts um, and uh, sorrow for our sin, seeing all of the wasted time and all the wasted opportunities. And we ask, O oh Lord Jesus, help us to grow. Grow us. Make us fit for good works that bring praise to your name. We do not want anyone to revile you and the word of God because of us. Lord, we confess our sins for falling in this way. Lord, be at work. We desire to be honest before you and the world about our sins and about our hope and confidence in you for forgiveness and sanctification and growth and maturity. We also praise you, Lord, as we consider how you have already answered these things. You have put, even in this congregation, um, older women around us that are such a blessing that though they struggle and, 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 and um, find um, weakness in their own lives, Lord, what we see in them is confession and repentance we see the way of the Christian life. We see maturity being produced, and it's so helpful to us. Lord, we thank you for consistency, constancy, steadfastness. We thank you for those women among us who are sound in faith and in love. We thank you for the example it sets, for the doctrine it teaches, for the way in which it, it just blesses our lives and makes life better. We ask that you would continue uh, to encourage them and strengthen them, to guide and grow them. Lord, we ask that you um, would be with all of us in all of our various callings and stages of life. Help us to be a congregation, a people that honors you, that lives in light of the gospel and the promises of your word and shows it forth and shows, shows it in our obedience um, and in our works. We pray these things with confidence, knowing that we ask for the very things you have promised to give, and that you are at work, on the move, going before us and beside us, sometimes carrying us when we're not even able to walk ourselves. Lord, you are uh, the strength of everything we do, the life in everything we have. We bless your name, and we trust you for everything. Our true King, our true master. Amen.